Welcome to the Emotional Balance Sheet, the go-to podcast for parents with multiple kids, especially those with twins, triplets, or more, who are navigating the maze of modern family life and personal finance. Whether you're overwhelmed by education or retirement planning, parenting dilemmas, career transitions, or trying to define your purpose and plan, we're here to guide you with empathy, encouragement, and expertise. Hosted by Paul Fenner, founder of Tama Capital, a certified financial planner and parent to four kids, including a set of triplets, our podcast is your ally in the quest for financial peace of mind, proving that money matters, but family comes first. Subscribe now and join our community of empowered parents at TamaCapital.com. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Tama may retain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. What does comprehensive financial planning even mean? At Tama Capital, it means a family office where lifestyle planning such as retirement, college, portfolio management, tax prep and planning, all are under one umbrella. But it goes beyond numbers. We focus as much on the emotional side of financial planning as we do on the financial side. We get you. We understand your challenges of building a family, business or career, and a healthy life. We are devoted to wealth planning for families like yours because we are you. Learn how our family can help your family by visiting TamaCapital.com. Today, I welcome back to the show college planning expert, Heidi King. This is a first for us on the podcast, having a two-part mini-series, if you will. But given the changes in the college planning landscape, especially around the FAFSA changes that have been rolled out over the past year, I thought that having... Heidi back on to talk about specifically the changes and impacts these FAFSA changes are going to have on families was really critical. I'll put a link in the show notes to our first conversation, which I definitely think you should check out. On that episode, we focus on the right fit school for students, whether it's social, academic, and financial implications that all go into choosing the right school. But with this episode, we're really focused on the FAFSA, the impacts it's going to have on, 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 on college planning and on families, especially those that may have multiple kids like I do, twins, triplets, or two or three col- or kids in college at the same time. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Heidi King. Heidi King, welcome back to the show. <laughs> Uh, thank you so much, Paul. I appreciate the opportunity. It's always good to talk about uh, FAFSA and the process. So I'm happy to be here. Well, this is this is a first for me. And I've been doing the show now for, I think, oh, a little over three and a half years now. And I've never, I've had, you know, repeat uh, guests, but none like like a two-part series like that that we have done. So I'll put a link in the show notes for our first conversation which really focused on what we called like finding the right fit school, which centered around social, academic, and financial. And one of the big pieces that we didn't get into, which we're going to talk about today, is financial aid and specifically FAFSA, because obviously there's a lot of news around that. 
Um, the year now is 2024, and we're recording this in February, and the FastFoot site is an absolute train wreck uh, with, with delays right yeah. and things like that. And I know that you have some updates that you'll provide us on that. But I think where I want to start is the, I guess could be a million dollar question for some families, is do I even have to fill out the FAFSA? Like if I know I already make too much money, Paul, like why am I either bothering going through this? So I think that's the question I want to start with with you today, Heidi, and then we'll we'll take it from there. Sure, sure. So the uh, simple answer is yes. Yes, you do need to fill out the FAFSA, even in spite of the assumption that you are not going to get need-based aid because that is really based off an assumption and it's not proving true for many families. The benefit that the FAFSA brings us um, can be different from school to school. And many of us find ourselves getting some need-based aid when we assume that we were not. So, but to back up further, the whole point of the FAFSA is also to give us, yes, some families are going to get Pell Grants because of income on the FAFSA, but many families won't. So when are, when are we benefiting in the middle, the middle families? Well, we're going to fill out the FAFSA because the colleges get the FAFSA result as well. Those colleges use that form, the result of that form, and the numbers from that form to build their own financial aid packages. This is where they get to choose what they're doing. They want to entice the kids to come. It is part of their marketing. So for some kids, they're going to roll out more opportunities and more carrots to come. In addition to that, the FAFSA actually is the application for the student loan. It stands for Free Application for Federal Student Aid. That is the application for the student loan that has nothing to do with how much money you make. So anybody that fills that out gets a very strategic loan. It is the only money that the kids can get without a parent co-signing. Some families love the ownership in paying for college. So those are the couple big reasons right away that I could say fill it out. It, it just leaves you with options. Um, sometimes it's catastrophic because of a job loss or a death. You might need that loan. Otherwise, kids just love it. It's helpful sometimes to have the ownership. And then again, colleges use the form themselves. So does anybody really know the secret sauce? And obviously, this is college by college on how they use the FAFSA. I think what you said is is really interesting. They use it as kind of a, a marketing tool, if you will, to draw kids in. But I got to imagine like every every college looks at that differently. Sure. And that kind of has the initial, where's the sticker price for the actual college? The result of your FAFSA doesn't change. That's fixed. But if a college is super expensive, has a high sticker price, Northwestern, uh, University of Southern Cal, you know, many of the Ivy Leagues, they take that FAFSA. You can find yourself need-based, really. You know, let's say your FAFSA result, which is called the Student Aid Index, let's say that's $50,000. 
You take that off of $90,000 at Northwestern, you're going to have $40,000 of potential need-based aid. Now, at your state college, maybe not. You won't because typically our state universities are less than that. But that gap at some of the more expensive schools could be covered by something that the college has then built. And that's that's one of the reasons I think that's a I, – I also should have said this right off the bat is like I think we're going to squash a lot of stereotypes that parents have about specifically the financial side of college planning today, um, especially with some of the changes in the you know FAFSA form. Um, but is that one of the reasons – that's actually one of the reasons – and I, I don't know if you agree with me, so I'll make the statement. I think that's one of the reasons why I push – families to think about you know expensive schools even though they don't think they may be able to afford it because they they could end up getting more aid for an an expensive school than they do for a state school and when you look at the the bottom line numbers you know they could be fairly equal or the say expensive private school if you will which is what they typically are um could actually be a lower cost and i think there's a really good comparison here when when you go car shopping. There's the MSRP, the sticker price, which you've already referenced. Then there's, okay, what's the price that you pay for it? So sometimes the 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 OEMs like Ford or GM will give you a $1,500 rebate or this rebate or that rebate. And then the dealership itself will like, oh, well, we really need to sell this car this month to get it off our lot. We're going to give you another $1,000 off. All right. So, yeah, and for sure, the the notion that these private schools, their sticker price, it does turn some people off because they have the assumption that they can't afford that. But it is the private schools, both in-state and out-of-state, right? Because that has nothing to do with in-state and out-of-state, right? right? It's just a private school. So they're the ones that we call flexibly priced. And they get to determine their own package based on, you know, uh, the different timing in the month, or are they filling their class or what their institutional priorities are. And when I say institutional priorities, it could be that they need somebody who's in the band. You know, they're losing their oboe section, and now they need two out of the four oboes all of a sudden. So they need to fill that. That's really interesting. I would have never thought about that. Yeah, I know. So, but we see that happening, you know, nope, they're good on the violins this year because uh, the violinist, oh, somebody needed a fifth year. So they're going to stay. So it can be athletics. It can be music. It can be theater. It can be geographics. They don't have a kid from New Mexico at Indiana, or they don't have many. So Indiana University, or, you know, once the kid that's a little further away because it's heavy with the Northeast, heavy with the Midwest, not so many people from the Southwest. They build that. They build that, the schools. And that's where you can sometimes see different merit packages, but it all starts mostly with the FAFSA because they understand what you can pay based on that FAFSA result. If they want you to come more and more, they're just more likely to add a housing grant or a little bit more money. Maybe you'll get the $6,000 scholarship, not the $3,000 scholarship. That's where the institutions have choices. So one of the the terminology you just, you you brought up was the student aid index. And I think for, for most families, 
um, an advisor such as myself who's been doing this for a while, we're still accustomed to what was called <laughs> EFC, so an expected family contribution. And so that's now been replaced with this student aid index. Can yep. you talk about the differences between the two? Yeah, it this term needed a refresh and an update because EFC actually stands for expected family contribution. So people assumed it was what they were going to be expected to pay. I know a lot of people were like sticker shocked with that. Right? Yeah, but it, it no longer had that one-to-one ratio where, where you saw the number and that was what you were going to pay. Actually, Paul, sometimes it was higher, Oof. right? So um, it needed a refresh. Um, so they came up with the uh, not-so-catchy student aid index. But it, think of it as an index number that is not necessarily a full math equation in and of itself. It does, you don't necessarily get it minus. So sticker price minus the student aid index. Yes, that is part of the formula, but it literally is like the secret recipe for Kentucky Fried Chicken. We don't know the whole recipe behind the window and the curtain. Somewhere in there will be merit packages, and sometimes some colleges will cover some need, but not all colleges will cover the same need, meaning Northwestern typically will cover 100%, 95% of need. Right. Other schools like University of Illinois or our state schools tend to cover less than 50% of the need. And then that's where it gets confusing. It's because, yes, it can be published and you'd have to go on website to website to figure out in general what percentage of need do they cover. So that is where this whole formula is just not straightforward, even in today's world. And that's that's one of the the aspects that I think has gotten really good over the last few years from a from myself as an advisor standpoint when I'm working with families and putting together college plans is that the software, the tools that that we're able to use today, they're really powerful, and they 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 can tell you that number, you know, within a few percentages. Like ninety percent of of need based aid is covered by this school, or only like you mm-hmm. mentioned, like state school will only cover forty percent of the need based. So mm-hmm. it's it's really been helpful getting an idea because like I'll have some kids that that roll into my office and they've got like ten schools mm-hmm. and which is great. I like when I'm having conversations, I'm not sure how, how, how your firm works this Heidi, but like I say, give me the, the more firms or the more firms, the more colleges, the, the better, like mm-hmm. don't, don't limit yourself. Don't pigeon your yourself into a hole. And, and maybe I have my own biases with that because when I was going through the process, oh boy, um, 30 years ago, <laughs> you know, that's what I did. Like yeah. I was like Notre Dame or bust. Well, guess uh-huh. what? Notre Dame didn't happen. And then my backup school was actually where your son goes. Um, IU at, at Bloomington. I got in, but then got the, then I got the sticker shock. I'm like, oh, well, this isn't going to work because I can't pay for it. So, um, but I, and maybe, so that's maybe why I push, you know, kids to think about like, just open the, open the faucet. Just give me as, as many as you would like. And, and then we can go from there. I think 
starting starting big is much easier than starting small with a small list. And I can say also having a range of the purchase that you want to make is so important as well. The components that we work with at College Inside Track is truly what is the right academic fit for your student? Socially, where do they want to find friends and live for four years? The financial fit should also be part of the discussion, usually about two or three years ahead of when you want to, when you're going to be applying for school, sit down with an actual budget. If it comes in at this price, are we comfortable paying that price? And that's where you as an advisor are so helpful, right? You can make that plan for hey, well, this is what this college typically will come in at for your grades. And of course, you know, we've got a lot of data analytics that can help us in that, you know, whether or not it's like a plus or minus 10% error, but are you comfortable paying for that, right? And then that would lead you or us to adjust the list based on, whoa, that is not going to be within your budget, that kind of a school. So let's get different schools on that budget because we can forecast that. So we've, I think we've already squashed one of the, the stereotypes out there about just filling out the financial aid form. Do it. Parents, if you're listening to this, fill out the yeah. form. Yeah, well, and you know what? One more thing that I want to add to that. Yeah. Some people will fill out the FAFSA because they are full pay. And they want the college to know that they don't need the need. Because some colleges at the end of the day, if they've got 10 kids and they've already run through or they have very little um, money to give left, but they still have, you know, spots in their class, they will take a full pay kid and they'll see that in the FAFSA because those FAFSA result numbers are super high. So believe it or not, FAFSA comes in because it can be strategic to get more money. And it also can be strategic because we don't need, we don't need the need. We are, we can go to the school and be a full pay. Wow. That's, that's interesting. I never thought about the other side of that. Um, that's really interesting. So I get another point. Yeah. Parents fill out the form. Yeah. 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 The, the next area I want to go in and, and, and hammer is, when you when they look at the student aid index, because I get this question a lot, is yeah. well, wait a minute. If if I start saving in a five twenty nine plan, that's not going to help me get any aid down the road. Can we can we put that? Can can you talk about that one so we can you know help uh, calm parents' nerves down? It's save in the five twenty nine plan. It's worth it. I, it is so worth it because typically, well, first of all. Typically, we're doing these years in advance. So we're setting up ourselves for success over the course of several, several, several years, if not a decade and a half, right? Right. You're contributing. It's growing. We've seen the numbers. The market just shows us. That actually is not up for debate. However, it does get factored into the FAFSA. If you are a parent that owns it, it comes in at a very small, just over 5% just over 5%. If you take what the gains have been statistically over potentially 15, 16, 18 years, you're making that up in spades. You just are. A $50,000 start 
a $30,000 start at birth, a $10,000 start at birth will accumulate and garner you more money at the end of the day to put towards college ever than the 5.64% that you will get when you have to submit it. That and you're be- just talking about like in the returns on the 529 portfolio. Like there's, we could, we could go off on a tangent on the tax impacts of it as well, but I'll, I'll save that. But just parents know that if you're working with an advisor, they should know and, and really plan the, the tax impacts of, you know, contributing to 529 because some states will give you basically free money or a tax credit off your state income tax to contribute to a 529 plan. Every state's different. Every state is different. In the state of Illinois, if you do the max contribution, it's like over $900. Yeah. Gain free money just by doing this. So again, talk to your advisor. These are things, frankly, that I didn't know. I didn't know this early enough. I don't think I knew this until my kids were in high school. Um, And I was like, bam, wow. Like, that's reason enough. Now, there are limitations. The advisors know the difference, um, and they can help you with the strategies. But at least have the conversation, does this work for us? And how does this work for us? Um, That's the biggie for parents. Grandparents owning the FAFSA, aunts and uncles owning the FAFSA. I'm sorry, not the FAFSA, the 529s. That doesn't even come into play anymore because it's a new FAFSA. I mean, it's a new, um, it's a new FAFSA form. So the 529, if it's an owner outside the nuclear family, it's not even assessed. So good- and that's a big change <laughs> because it was not like that. Yeah. Advisors had to work really hard um, on what they would do is they would hold on to that, you know, uh, grandparent 529 money until the senior year. So there was a lot of mixed computations yeah. and work anymore. You know why it's not on there? Because the FAFSA was simplified. It went from 108 questions down to less than 40. That question has been removed. So what's, what is the, so the other question I get from parents often is, okay, well, if it's okay to to contribute to the 529 plans and it's not going to ding us on on financial aid what what does what does hurt us the most i know the answer to this so but i but i i'd like you to ex- explain like tell us like what what are the what are the the negative impacts like is it is it parents income is it kids income is it kids assets yeah so all of those play a role in the formula calculations, but bar none, the biggest marker and effect in the FAFSA is parents' income, household income, because sometimes it could be a step parent. So, and sometimes it could just be, you know, somebody else in the household. So, but household income, income on the taxes is the single biggest factor. And that is actually up to. 47% assessed, 47%, not just over five, 47%. So whether or not you're going to be need-based or not, we can get it out of the notion that it's assets. It's not. It's parents' income. One, going back to assets, though, because I know some, I, I've seen this in my own firm at, at Tama, where I'll be working with a new family and they're bringing in 
they have assets that were set up for a kid for an UGMA or an UPMA, which is a fancy word for a minor trust, if you will. And one yeah. of the things that that I do is I try to get that I, I I try to get that moved as fast as possible for two reasons. One is when most people don't realize that when that minor turns eighteen, they get full control over that. Most people don't want that. And number two <laughs> is that that UGMA or UPMA when they're when the kids are going to college is in the kids' name, and so that gets treated as um, student assets, which has a bigger impact than say parents' assets. Correct. That is, that is true, and it does. So students' assets are assessed four times higher than parents, twenty percent. So you're wise if the student is finding that they are in the need-based zone, that that is going to be assessed higher. So if the parents income is at a range where that student can be getting need-based assistance, then you want to be very, very careful about where that money is held. You would want to use and um, draw down on or move the UGMAs and the UTMAs, which are those savings accounts that are um, for the benefit of the student. So one of the other changes that 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 hurts me personally <laughs> And I know it it will hurt several of the families I work with. So most people know that I work with with families and I have this special draw to families that have twins, triplets, or you know, basically three or more kids. Why? Because if you're listening to the show, listeners, by now you should know I have a set of now 13-year-old triplets and an 11-year-old. And so before, under the old um, student aid calculations, there was a basically a, a multiples discount, if you will. That EFC, if your EFC expected family contribution was sixty thousand, and you had two kids at the college at the same time, it'd be really thirty thousand for each uh, uh, kid or student. Now yeah. that's gone away. It is, and then I can give you some trending good news as well. I so, was hoping you were going to tell me this, Heidi. <laughs> And so yeah, are, and I, just, I know a handful of other families listening to this. <laughs> yeah. So um, we are right in the middle of this new FAFSA. So the data analytics are not anything that we can derive from a full conclusion yet. Um, so, you know, hang tight, keep the information coming and we'll, 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 we'll know more. But the genesis of this change is that within the FAFSA simplification the bill was created to purposely stop the benefit of kids getting discounts just merely because of birth order or the way that a family had their their planning. Sometimes you're not planning for multiples, right? This Most is people insane. Aren't. <laughs> this is, of course, it's harder to afford and pay for college if you have them at the same time, let alone with triplets or, you know, more. So we are frustrated for you because we see this play out with the families that we work with. It is definitely challenging. Many families, 70%, in fact, 70% of students have a sibling at college at the same time. Wow. I didn't realize it was that high. It is that high. So 
this is a benefit that has been snatched away from so many people, right? Super frustrating. Matter of fact, if you are going to ask me what are the three reasons, maybe even the two reasons that this form has been delayed so drastically, because um, this legislation was passed three years ago. So it could have been implemented more quickly. But this result of losing the discount for multiple kids has been extremely challenging and gone over really like a lead balloon. What ended up happening is exactly what you said. You lose the discount. It used to be that you were able to split it by two, by three. We've lost the ability to do that. They have decoupled that information. Yes, you still report. I have two kids. I have three kids. But it's been decoupled out of the formula calculations. Um, what we are hearing is that that is from the federal level. The federal level won't continue to evaluate that for your Pell Grant. You've got one one ratio on that. They fill out the FAFSA, they get their own FAFSA. Child number two, twin. Child number three, twin. They get their own student aid calculation. However, remember I said this FAFSA is sent to the colleges themselves. Right. The colleges have authority to build back in an institutional choice and give you a discount. What we don't know is what colleges are and what colleges may not be. And is it the same amount that you would have gotten on last year's FAFSA? So that is good news. It could be that some colleges say, hey, triplets? And I don't mean that they all need to go to that same college. I just mean that that institution, their financial aid, their admissions may give you a discount that we're not yet aware. And that's where we need to like just keep an, uh, like hoping that some college, we will know more of this literally in the next three months when we actually get the results from the FAFSA. The FAFSA, as you know, has been further delayed as of last week. So, Right. So that, that actually was leads me to the question. So I have a family that has a set of twins right now, and they uh -huh. are both going to the same school um, in Northern yeah. Michigan. And is, and I, obviously, we, I think we've said this, I don't know how many times, probably can't say enough. Every school is so different when it comes to financial aid. It's like, you know, secret sauce, like how Kentucky, I think you yeah. used the Kentucky fried chicken reference. Yeah, but yeah. Does do we have any indication as to like what schools really offer discounts for sending students to the same school? So, like in this example with the family I'm referring to, they got a little bit of a I think a sibling discount for for both of their boys to go to school there, but it wasn't a lot. It it definitely wasn't wasn't as much as they were probably hoping for. Mm -hmm. That there is no list. I wish there were a list, just like I wish I could tell you there's like a great list for scholarships. There's no list that that has, um, well, a multi-student discount. But if you would imagine, how would you figure this out? Schools that have a high acceptance rate, meaning 50%, 70%, where they're accepting a lot of kids, they may be impassioned 
they may just be more likely to give you a discount. Now, is the discount going to be split? No, it won't be split, but you could get something. Housing grant, you know, 500 bucks, 1,000 bucks, but it's not going to be a $10,000 gift just because you got two. Is, do you, I, I know you're, you, we don't have data on this, but I'm curious because I just, this question just popped in my mind is, I wonder if there's a bigger difference between sending, say, the multiples to a public school versus a private school. My guess is, and just this is just a guess, like you'd probably have a better chance at getting a bigger discount at a private school than you would a, a public school. Yeah, again, because they just have more discretion yeah. over wanting the kid and then filling it in with enticements and their marketing. You know, that is their financial aid package. It is what they get to market to you and show you that they really want you to come. You know, so did you tour? Did you write them a letter? Did you say, I have a sister or a brother or that's coming? You know, where can you help us? And in passioning them, we call that appeals. We call that appeals. It's after you've gotten in, you get your financial award letter. And what you would do is you would call school to school, potentially write an email or a letter and attach it and then ask. We need you to come in. When we do this for our families, and we don't do this for every family because it doesn't work. It's not necessarily a strategy that we, um, as a blanket, deploy. But when we see things that are notable, and it is a flexibly priced school, i.e. maybe a private school, um, or even a state school that's not really filling their numbers, right? Not the flag, not Michigan, right? Not IU, you know, but are we talking about another school that's maybe the classes don't always get filled up? That's the school that you're asking, like, hey, then, you know, word those correctly and ask them, you know, can you come up a little bit more, a little bit more in our family would make a difference at X. What is your X? Is it 2000? Is it 1000? Is it 10,000? Um, for sure, we recommend families this year that lost something overnight to appeal the FAFSA, specifically with the financial aid departments of the colleges. Because you can say, we had this last year, we now have this this year. Can you give us a human response? Because they will look over this as, you know, as it won't be a machine. It is actually evaluated by a person, and then they can come up with their own decision. So before I pivot to another question, I just jotted down, which I think is going to be yeah. interesting. It's not something I really have thought of before, but um, I have a connection to this. What What are you recommending or the conversations that you're having with with the families that you're working with, with this delay and fast flood? I mean... Obviously, is there? There's nothing that we can do. We just kind of write it out, and when when it opens back up, when they get things fixed, then parents just get in and 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 do it. So, um, there is a lot to unpack in the delays because it's got to be really frustrating for the schools as well because they're trying to fill numbers, and I got to imagine oh that's God. pretty difficult. Yeah, they have to do all of this in such a condensed, truncated time frame that they are really under the gun and frankly understaffed. 
So what it requires from us is really just patience. Patience. Because the timeline is now officially off kilter. It's off the rails. So um, just have patience. You know, what we know now is that the actual FAFSA forms won't even be going to the colleges themselves until probably the second week of March. The colleges themselves won't even get it till the second week of March. So from there, it's going to take at least another four weeks. We would expect these to be in our hands normally. Six weeks earlier, they're going to be delayed. We're not going to get these. If you're a family that is in the process of applying to colleges, senior and high school, you are not going to get your financial aid offers until mid-April, probably. Decision day is normally May 1st. Right. It gives families two to three weeks, and that feels extremely rushed and uncomfortable. <laughs> Everybody's in the same boat. Some colleges have announced this week, Illinois State is one of them, that they are going to push back May 1st to a later date. So decision dates are starting to be announced, school to school, that they could be pushed back. So hang in there. Um, hang in there. Okay. Patience. But, but for families, there's no... That does not prevent them from going in and filling out the form now, correct? Yeah, no. Honestly, I haven't filled out my form. I was waiting for all of this. I'm fine waiting. I'm going to do it this weekend. I don't think um, I I had any interest in doing it while it was in its soft launch and being one of the people that was the guinea pigs. So I watched a lot of videos. We do professional development on this at College Inside Track. Most of our families have already done it, but I wanted to see from other people, you know, where the hiccups were. So I am perfectly fine. I'm going to do it this weekend. I don't have an applying senior, though. If I had an applying senior, I think you got to do it early, 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 just maybe not on the first week. So, yeah, if you haven't done it yet, do it right now. It's fine. And then... Oh, sorry to interrupt, Heidi. One of the things I've kind of learned, and I, I was hoping you can confirm this with me, is like when I'm when I'm working with a family and they're going to they're they're completing it. Is it is it better to have the student fill their part out first and then the parents, or does it really or doesn't it matter? They are suggesting that some of the processing delays and faults are because the parents are doing too much too early. So um, have a FAFSA ID that takes about two to three days to get your ID. You request that. You put some information in, studentaid.gov. Then we're hearing that the best processes would be have the student go further into the form and then invite the parent and or contributor. They've renamed it a bunch of different things, but it's called the contributor. So the contributor... Well, are are basically the um, guardian or parent that will be filling out the form. Some of those have to do with how you're filling out your taxes. Are you married filing jointly? If you are married filing jointly, this is the easiest way. Only one of the parents needs to have the FAFSA ID. So that student will invite that one parent and that one parent will be responsible. That seems to be getting fewer faults. Okay. And fewer problems. Okay. Good to know. 
um, especially for me going forward, because I know I've already had one family or two families have the parent fill it out first. I'm like, oh, probably should have waited. Um, yeah, they're, they're going home. I get it. Um, sometimes they're getting faults and or processing delays. Please understand, we thought those would be fixed. Now they're not because they're recalculating the formula using the new income tables. We expect them to be able to go in and edit or the processing delays will be further fixed by the first or second week of March. Okay. So the question I jotted down was really interesting. And it's only because I found out about it because um, I actually, with with all my jumping around of, of colleges and where to go and whatnot, I actually finished my undergrad at Adrian College in Adrian, Michigan. It's a liberal arts, uh, our athletic conferences, MIAA, been around for, God, 150 plus years probably or so. Um, but I was actually, I think my wife, Teresa, brought this up to me, but my sister-in-law went to Albion. Uh-huh. And we recently, we, we were at a, a family event and it got brought up like, dude, do you hear like Albion's like going bankrupt or filed for bankruptcy? I'm like, what? I'm like, no way. I'm like, maybe Olivet and <laughs> in in MIAA, which has kind of struggled financially. But so I did some digging and I found that out. Like, is that something that that you guys talk to families about the the actual um, financial? Um, yeah, I guess acumen of 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 an a university. I mean, obviously, your bigger ones like your state schools, you know, they're pretty solid. But like these these smaller kind of liberal arts schools that you know, if they don't make numbers, it. it it's really hard um, for them to, to compete financially. Yeah. So there are warning signs that some small liberal arts colleges are, are having trouble filling their classes. And um, yes, so there is a, it's usually doesn't happen overnight. So we usually see the warning signs within the industry and then we would steer the family away from a school that was known to be having some financial problems. It's usually not an overnight thing. It's, there's usually warning signs. Okay. Um, so, but, you know, there was even a major school in Arizona, not a small school, that announced that they are having institutional um, financial issues as well. And um, now, do I think that they're going to close as a result of it? No. But I think that they may have a larger tuition increase than would be normally the case. You know, some colleges are even able to hold their tuitions in place and give you a lock for four years. Purdue does this. Drake does this. Um, neither of the colleges my kids go to do that. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's nice when they do because you can plan right. for what's going to be or actual years. Whereas Mizzou, uh, two years ago, or one, one, yeah, two years ago, they went up like 13%, 12% in one year. So that may be what happens if they're teetering. And yes, some of them are also closing. So going back to our, I guess our first conversation uh, a few weeks ago, and then, and then this one today, Heidi, is there anything that we haven't covered that that you think parents should know about? Like, did we, 
did we miss anything? Because we we've covered a a lot. We've covered you know how to figure out the right fit, going back to social, academic, financial. You know, this conversation we've really dug deep into the financial aid aspect of it. Um, I think one thing that we I think we talked about in our previous conversation, um, but I think it's worth bringing up is scholarships. I think. There's still a lot of families out there that think that scholarships are going to be this panacea, if you will, um, and that their kids are going to even, you know, their kids get great grades, that they're going to get all this scholarship and apply to all these private scholarships. And I think we did talk about this last time. We're like, or maybe I've even said this at one point. I'm like, your kid's better off getting a job than spending hours upon hours applying for a scholarship that may not even renew. It may be a one and done. Do I have that right? Yeah. I just wrote an article about this. It is like the dirty little secret. (laughs) Maybe that's why I read it. (laughs) (laughs) There is uh, some colleges do not allow you to scholarship stack. Stack, yes. Yeah. So it's not renewable. Well, some colleges are renewable. Renewable is from the colleges, but they won't Mm -hmm. let you stack. Meaning that you work so hard to get this outside scholarship, whether it be $500 or $2,000. But the way they have packaged your financial aid offer, they will reduce their offer based on the money that you want or your child won. And there is nothing that is more frustrating. Well, that is like the top 10 frustrating things. Like <laughs> I was going to say, that's pretty frustrating. Right? And this happened to our family. The way it was packaged at IU, they, my son won a $2,000 scholarship. He wrote the essay. He filled out the application. It wasn't a five-minute event. Um, he, and then it, it, it got reduced from his scholarship because he had to report it. You have to report to the college. We won this. So this is, you're going to receive this check from blah, blah, blah. Um, it was my husband's employer, which was awesome. And uh, then IU said, great. And now this is where the, you know, nuts under the coconut are. You you still owe the same amount of money. So is that so that reporting of outside scholarships is is that a, a school by school decision or is that or does every school require that school by school and um, but I do think that most require it like okay. they you know all of those parts and the pieces of the puzzle are typically having to be reported um, although check with your school okay because. Everybody could have a different policy, so I guess it would depend. Okay, um, so going back to the question I asked, that I ended up in interjecting an answer on on the scholarship part mm-hmm. is there is there anything from from our previous conversations or the I guess an overall arching you know college planning perspective that that you would like you know to to kind of close with? Yeah, so I think that. Families that are embarking on this journey for the first time, it is super exciting, right? It really, really is. It is the first time that that your child gets to pick the school, usually for some other reason than it is down the street in your town and that you chose to live there, right? So it's a really exciting timeline and time frame and a milestone family event. It is, however, a lot more complicated than I knew going into it. I was super excited to do a tour, hit a football game, go to a basketball game, 
you know, my kids were in a baseball team or wrestler, and we would go to these college campuses because that's where an event was or a summer tournament. And we would have a burger. We would go see a baseball game, the college game, right? Man, there are so many other parts and pieces to this. Getting organized early is so important. Having conversations with your financial advisor, talking about what's a four-year plan. I think from a parent's perspective, that's super important. And then getting your student engaged. Not all students are ready to be engaged as sophomores. So sometimes you have to be patient with them. The biggest thing is do not wait until process at the beginning of your senior year in high school. Because you don't know it, but you're too late. You're too late. Everything will be smashed and you will be super, super stressed. So plan these different parts and pieces out at milestone moments. What are we going to do this summer before your junior year? What are we going to do your junior year? Can we visit? Can we tour? How do we consider test optional landscape? Many colleges used to be test optional because of the pandemic. Kids couldn't sit for a test. Test centers were closed. We are seeing a trend that some colleges are going back to test required or test preferred. Dartmouth last week, this week, just announced they're going to go back to test required. Purdue went test required two years ago. They can't figure out how to accept an engineer with 40,000 people that are applying that all have four sevens out of a four oh. So they need the test in some colleges and in some majors. So I would say that a little bit of organization and then can be so, so helpful along the way. So you may have answered that within this question, but typically my closing question is, what's the best thing about being a parent? And so you've already answered that. And so my my alternative question was, was, was this. What what is the best thing? What was the best thing about going through the college planning process for your family? And so, audience, just full disclosure. So, um, Heidi, your oldest son is a senior at IU in Bloomington, and your younger son is a junior at Illinois Wesleyan University. Yeah. So, um, well, the best part was just joining them on the journey. You know, thinking about post secondary. Oh, they worked all throughout high school, right, to be ready for this moment. So, you know, being able to kind of um, help them with what they needed, um, help them review things that were going to be impactful, where they wanted to go to school, where they were going to find their friends, big school, small school, little school, urban school, sports vibe or no. Um, It was just, you know. There were a lot of exciting, sometimes stressful moments that we got to go through as families. And what did I love? I really loved the tours. I loved going to the college campuses with them. I really did. That was really, really an awesome experience because I didn't do that. I went to maybe the campuses, right? So many of us now want our children to be able to experience college outside of our state. And we fully embrace that. In our family. Now, they both ended up closer to home. 
but they knew they had the option and they got to work through the benefits. So they didn't feel like they were forced to stay or they had no other options. And I do love that. Do you, do you recall, Heidi, like how many college visits you went on between both boys? Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I mean, it was definitely upwards of 20, maybe 30, wow. you know, because that sounds like exciting. Just just hearing you say that, it's like that's like that's a lot of places. That's that's sounds pretty pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Grandma lives down in Florida, so we went to a big campus um, in Gainesville. We went to another big campus, um, University of Florida. Right, um, that was super fun. Um, Florida State, and then we went to smaller campuses. Um, Flagler, you know, like what's going to work for you? Because my younger son, when he went to IU, he was like, I don't want to walk 30 minutes from my dorm to class. And I was like, whoa, I never even thought about that that would be a bummer. He didn't like the big campus. My other one, he he had it like, I, I love all the vibe of all of this. So the tours, I really loved. And, you know, we went SEC, we, you know, we did all that stuff out in Colorado, but that's because we were on vacation or we were at a tournament. That's yeah. what we did. Well, and just, and just listening to, to your response to that, I'm just going to prime you for our next conversation, which um, is, it has, it will have nothing to do with financial aid. It will have nothing to do with college planning. It will be completely. And if you're up to it, very personal, how did you and your husband do when the kids actually left because I have, oh. I've been dealing with that with families for the last couple of years. And I was just actually, actually having a conversation with the family that had twins that went to Northern Michigan. And she was talking about how it was like really difficult and it's been difficult because she sees like other families that their kids are closer and they see them more often. But then she's like, but Paul, at the end of the day, I think it's much better the way it worked out. So I would be I would I would be really interested to hear, hear your thoughts on the personal side of what it's been like getting your two boys through college. Yeah. Oh gosh. Yeah. Well, we could really discuss that for sure. Yeah. The launch and then the empty nest. Yes. It has uh, some wonderful moments and then also some moments of, you know, I see an empty bedroom when I when I when I wake up and you know, but yeah. So happy to talk about that. Well, awesome. Well, Heidi, I can't thank you enough for the last uh, couple of conversations. And I'm already excited about the next one we're going to have. But uh, again, uh, Heidi King, College Inside Track, we'll link to um, your LinkedIn profile um, and, and where people can find you. But you've been just a tremendous uh, resource for myself and the families that, that listen to this. And uh, can't thank you enough. Awesome. Paul, thank you so much for having me. And I look forward to that next conversation then. That sounds awesome. So what do we take away from this second conversation with, with Heidi? I think first and foremost, it doesn't matter what your income level is. Fill out the FAFSA form. Even with its delays right now, it still is a requirement that I think all parents' families should take. And specifically, the reason why it allows you access to the federal loans that are available for your student. As we talked about, it's the only loan that's in the student's name. So 
So if you want your children to have skin in the college planning cost of their education, this is one way to do it. And usually those loans are at a interest rate that's lower than a parent plus loan or a private loan that you would typically get. The second thing I really want to emphasize is contribute to a 529 plan if you can, if it's part of your financial plan. The impact that your 529 has on your financial aid, as Heidi and I discussed, is a little over 5%. The biggest driver of need-based aid is parents' income. I would say the next biggest impact on aid is children's assets. And we talked about UGMAs and UPMAs and trust, but just know this, if if your child has assets in their name, like $10,000 in a checking account or something like that, you know, look at getting that moved out of their name. It could help if you're on the fringe of getting aid or not getting aid, could help uh, put you in a better spot. Again, show notes are chock full of resources that we discussed, um, not only in this conversation, but our first conversation. That's all for this week. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast. Please visit TamaCapital.com to subscribe to this podcast or to connect with certified financial planner and registered investment advisor, Paul Fenner of Tama Capital. And please join us again next time on the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast.